Welcome to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. Hello, this is Diane Estabrook, staff writer for McKnight's Home Care Daily. Less than two months ago, Inhabit Home Health and Hospice officially split from Encompass Health. At the helm of the new company is Barbara Jacobsmeyer, who headed the unit for a year before it split from its parent. I sat down recently with Jacobsmeyer for a wide-ranging interview. I started my discussion asking her about the challenges of starting a new company during an ongoing pandemic and new inflationary headwinds. Well, I think the challenge certainly is completely standing up everything we need to be our own standalone public company. But there's incredible opportunities. You know, I spent most of my healthcare career on the hospital side and just seeing so much movement towards care in the home that it's just a, it's a great opportunity. In fact, I spent my morning this morning with some of our team members in the field doing a ride along and just really getting the feel for what our teams do uh, taking care of our patients in each individual market. So it's just a great opportunity to kind of to learn a different industry and again, a lot of growth potential. And you're a little over a month, let's say not less than two months into your spinoff from Encompass. How is Inhabit as a separate company going to distinguish itself from when it was a unit of Encompass other than the brand name? Yeah, well, I think a big part of it is really being able to focus all of our energies on care in the home. So from a staff, uh, particularly our clinician side, you know, it's, it's when you're part of a larger organization that has facility-based and home-based, it's hard to, to really talk up all those benefits about working in the home, in the home industry. And so we can really solely focus on our recruitment, kind of branding, not only the habit, but branding what is it to be a home health and hospice uh, clinician. So we're really excited about being able to focus solely on that. Uh, and then really when you look at like technologies and our strategy moving forward, we can have 100% of our attention placed on care in the home. Gotcha. What sort of a pipeline is Encompass going to provide in Habit and, and how much might that comprise your business? Well, over, I mean, so uh, the home health and hospice was part of Encompass for the last eight years. And I will say there was a lot of work that was done to really develop what did it, what did we need on the home health side to provide the care for those high intensity rehabilitation patients. And so uh, a big focus on not only nursing, but physical, occupational, speech therapy, those core clinicians that you need to be able to bring a stroke patient home or a spinal cord injury patient home. And so the work that's been done over the last eight years to help the inpatient rehab hospitals improve their discharge home of their patients, lower their readmissions, improve their patient experience. Uh, We learned a lot together. And so that relationship will continue. I think we're going to continue to still be a really strong provider to them. But it's also taught us a lot uh, on what we can do even with other inpatient rehab hospitals or LTACs or SNFs, and so broadening what we learned through our work with Encompass uh, to really just a broader market. You talked earlier about a lot of care moving into the home, and we're seeing that, you know, from primary care to home care. Are you looking at getting into any other areas that you're not currently in, um, say, home care, hospital at home? Right. So we are certainly keeping an eye on all of those, you know, SNF at home, hospital at home, uh, the personal uh, private duty piece. And what we're really watching is, is that 
that regulatory landscape, uh, the reimbursement landscape, how is that changing? You know, is, for example, is hospital at home going to continue to be something uh, post-pandemic? So we're kind of keeping an eye on that. But in the meantime, we're working with some of the Medicare Advantage plans at a, like this local smaller level to do like what we're calling Home Health Plus. So really helping them get more of their patients home. And that may mean us partnering with like private duty in that local market. We're doing that so that we really get a feel for what does it look like to scale that if and when Sniff at Home becomes a, a, a real thing for our Medicare benefit. If Hospital at Home becomes something that stays past the pandemic. So we want to know how does this work? How do we work with other partners in our markets? Do we eventually need to own it or do we just need a partner? And I think what we're learning is going to help us if and when it comes to the time to scale it. Gotcha. Let's pivot for a moment, if, if you don't mind, to what I would say is the elephant in the room right now um, for the home health industry, which is the Medicare home health rule. We saw NAC and Leading Age and the American Hospital Association all send letters to CMS protesting the rule. Did Inhabit do that? Yes, we did. So we had a we had our own comment letter, but I would say we were very much in alignment with NAC, with the other industry leaders, with actually our other, you know, the other companies that we that we work alongside of. Uh, we were all, I think, very much in alignment in uh, in in how we commented. How devastating is this rule going to be? We talked the other day with Bill Dombey, who's the president of NAC, who said that as many as 50% of home health agencies could be detrimentally affected by this financially, not necessarily close, but could have real financial constraints. Would you agree with his assessment? I absolutely agree with his assessment. And, you know, it's, it's really that combination of they were already dealing with more movement to Medicare Advantage, which tends not to to pay as well. You have your wage inflation, you have your gas prices. So you already have a lot weighing on these smaller providers. And then to have this potential of a proposed rule go through would, would really be something that I think would be kind of that straw that broke the camel's back for many of them. You are a new company, but you have been talking about um, mergers and acquisition activity. And some of your competitors have said in light of this proposed rule that they're tapping the brakes for now on home health acquisitions. Is that how you're looking at it? Or would you potentially see this as maybe a buying opportunity? Yeah, well, it will definitely become, I think, a consolidation opportunity. I wouldn't say that we are tapping the brakes. What I would say is, when, well, first of all, when you look at our pipeline, it is a little bit more heavily weighted right now on hospice because you do kind of have this cloud over the proposed rule for home health. I would say that it's more the potential sellers that are tapping the brake because they know that they're in this, this uncertainty, right, where as you're trying to value their business, we have to take into account, well, what if that proposed rule goes as written? They're thinking, well, maybe it won't go as written, and should I just take kind of a step back to see what comes out in the final rule? So I would say it's more the sellers kind of tapping the brakes, uh, but we're continuing to have them in the pipeline and just, you know, respecting if they want to kind of put a pause to see, you know, what ends up coming out of the final rule. You talked about Medicare Advantage plans, um, and some providers see this as sort of a challenge. Um, You talked about sometimes they pay less than fee-for-service Medicare plans. How are you, as a new company, negotiating with these MA plans? What are you keeping in mind to try to get the best possible rates as you can from these plans? 
Yeah, at this point, we only have one large national contract. Most of our other contracts are smaller, either local or regional agreements. But we're at the table with all of the large plans because what we're finding is it's a good time to be at the table. They're struggling to get timely initiation of care for their members because obviously with the with the labor shortage, you know, places are having to decide like how how and who do I accept? What patients can I accept? And again, in the time of wage inflations and gas prices, we really can't take that low low paying and still be competitive for our staff. So what we're doing is we're at the table with the payer saying, we don't want to be a commodity anymore. We want to be a partner with you. We bring great value. We have lower than industry level uh, hospitalization rates that mean something to them that decreases their cost. And so, you know, let us be a partner with you. Let us help close your gaps in care. Um, you know, hold us accountable to our, our outcomes um, so that we, you know, so that we deserve to be paid that higher rate. And so, you know, they, they don't move really quickly, but I think there certainly is interest in saying, well, we want you to take more of our patients and how can we make that happen? And we're saying, well, pay us a fair rate, but we'll make us earn it. It kind of sounds like what you're saying is that dealing with Medicare Advantage plans can be a win-win for the home health agencies. And we, we've heard a little bit of that, although we're also hearing a lot of criticism of these plans. So can it be a win-win for home health agencies? I think it can be a win-win. I think that we all have to go in with the mindset that we have to earn those higher rates. I think it can also be a win-win from the perspective of, you know, if we can prove that they can trust us to manage that patient and manage those outcomes, then they don't need those third-party conveners to be telling us how many visits we need to have. Um, If we can show them that we have systems in place to help us be accountable to that. So I think it can uh, be a win-win, but it's going to take some work on both us and the MA payers. This has been a tough time for your industry um, and all of healthcare. You know, we're still emerging from the pandemic, not out of the woods yet with that. Now we're seeing inflation. During your earnings call in early August, you talked about an increase in paid time off and difficulty filling the void with on-care nurses. And you mentioned looking at compensation. As you go through and look at that, do you think that there is price gouging going on with some of these nursing agencies that are providing contract nurses? That's been a challenge. I would say we don't use as much of that agency labor as the facilities do. Uh, And I would say for a reason, right? A hospital, whether it's an inpatient short-term acute care hospital or a inpatient rehab hospital, when they pay for an agency nurse, even at these elevated rates that we've seen, you know, those nurses are usually following a caseload of patients, you know, maybe three, four, five, six patients. So it's a lot easier to still justify, even at those higher rates, to use more of them in the facility settings. For us in home health and hospice, it's harder because everything obviously is a one-on-one visit. So we tended to only use agency labor for kind of that short term. We needed to cover for an FMLA or we had hired somebody in there in orientation. And so we needed it as a bridge to keep our referral sources, you know, happy with us. Um, What I would say, though, it certainly has increased the competitiveness because they have been paying those nurses really, really high rates and rates that you just can't compete with. And so as more more facilities need less of them, you know, we're hoping it helps settle down that that price gouging, as, as you as you called it. And what is your recruitment strategy when it comes to bringing in nurses and aides and whatnot? Um, is it is it about compensation? Is it about bonuses? Is it about benefits? What is it? 
It is, it is so big. It is, um, and we spend time as a team talking about this. It is, it, you have to be competitive from a compensation benefits. And even, you know, for me, a thing that I needed to learn is that for our remote workforce, for our, our folks that are out there driving millions and millions of miles, mileage reimbursement is a huge part of that compensation package. And we have to be competitive with that because that's, they see that as part of their earnings, especially in a time where there's been so much gas price volatility. And so it's really understanding what does that full compensation package look like? But it's also realizing that for the staff, for truly the long-term staff, it's way more than that. There are staff that will actually take less pay if it means they get a nice balance in work-life balance that we can help them be efficient in what they do, that they're not taking all their work home with them at the end of the day, that we can manage their on-call. We've seen that with hospice, that, you know, that we've had folks in the past that had left because they said, I can go there for, and make less money, but they handle on-call for me. And so it's, it's really getting deeper to that staff and understanding what drives them beyond the compensation package because we have to keep up with that, but we have to really figure out the rest of it and I think that's where we're spending a lot of our energies. How much has to do, too, with opportunities down the road as far as people getting additional training and being able to get educated and do other things within the organization? Um, individual development is a, a question that candidates now even ask in the interview. And so it, it really is important that we have that career path for them. We have to acknowledge that for some of them, they do have an interest in staying in their clinical role. I think there in the past has been this assumption that growth meant management roles or leadership roles, and not everybody wants that, and nor do we want everybody to want that. And so we have to make sure that we can appeal to the person that says, I want to grow in a career ladder. I want to be able to be maybe a preceptor or a mentor. How can I grow? I want to be that staff therapist or that staff nurse but I want to grow in my clinical role. And then you have the others that do want those leadership opportunities. And so it's us showing them how can you advance. There's so many great advancements opportunities in their local market. There's even more if they want to grow and, and are potentially willing to relocate to become my, more of a regional or a national uh, role. So uh, it is really at, really at the time that we're interviewing them, sharing with them what are all their potentials for growth if they join the company. You alluded earlier to higher gas prices being an, an issue with um, some of these nurses. Um, what sort of difficulties are you seeing right now? You know, we're hearing a little bit about possibly consumer prices abating a little bit. But looking forward, um, is this sort of the next big headwind in addition to the pandemic is inflation? And, and how do you get your arms around that or how are you getting your arms around that? So one of the things, so for example, on gas prices alone, we did, we learned early in the year, again, as we were reaching out to and looking at our employee engagement information, talking to our talent acquisition team on what were the challenges they had. And we saw, for example, mileage reimbursement being a key thing. So we looked at our entire methodology. And in fact, what we changed is going to cost us about $8 million year over year if we drive the exact same miles. Now, some of that, a portion of that is about the gas prices. But what we've said is even if gas prices come back to where they were um, a year ago, it's still going to be about $6 million more because we've had to be more competitive in just our methodology around that. And so it's really looking at these things saying, okay, what is temporary, but what are things that we're not going to be able to change completely back to the way it was because we need to be more competitive? But we've also talked about how inflation can be 
a uh, and, their, and our potential recession can be um, also an opportunity for us because I do think that there were people that left um, that thought, well, I'm going to retire early. The, the pandemic scared them, didn't really want to be in, in the healthcare environment. And now maybe they be watching their 401ks not be at the level that they once were and say, you know what, if nothing else, I'd like to come back in a PRN status or a part-time status. So we're really focused on rehiring and uh, have had some success with that on calling back people that have left and just inviting them back, even if it's at a reduced level. Um, and so we're kind of taking advantage, if you will, a little bit on, of that. How do you see your industry evolving? You mentioned earlier technology, and, and I, I'm assuming that technology is going to play a significant role in the evolution of home health and hospice. It will. I think what's important, and we have we pilot a lot of technologies. There's a lot out there on the market. There's a lot that are wanting to to grow. You know, they're small companies, and we do pilot uh, quite a bit. But we pilot it because what we find uh, is that in many situations, uh, the, some of the current technologies out there that sound so great on paper, when you put it into practice because we serve an elderly population, you know, we serve an average age of 78. What we find is that we have to make sure, can this really work? Will this work in that environment? And if not, why? And are there changes that we can suggest so that it can work? And so I think we're really early on, on really being able to identify technologies that we can scale largely that are gonna be effective and efficient and cost, cost effective for us to use. Um, but I would say that, you know, like one of the things that we're piloting right now is more of that virtual visit for the for the patient that may benefit from one of their visits just being, you know, via, via an iPad uh, and a virtual visit. But again, it's that certain patient that's really ready for that type of thing. So I think we're early on. It's really exciting. But I think we have to go cautiously. I don't think there's anything at this stage that's ready for a, a full scale. But it sounds like you could also use that technology with your staff as far as onboarding and communicating with them in the field, which you're probably already doing. But are there ways that you can even build upon that? Yes. And that's where when we're focused on trying to help our staff be as efficient as possible. So, for example, we are using some, you know, remote calling. You know, it used to be that you always had to have a clinician call a, let's say, a hospice patient to make sure they had all the supplies that they need. Now it's being able to put in you know, the, the, the remote where they get a call saying, you know, press two if I need additional wound care supplies. or So that there's a way to do some of these things automated that really help our staff. And I do think that will probably have a little bit more quicker traction than some of the things that are patient facing. Barb Jacobs-Meyer, thank you so much for joining me. Great interview and uh, look forward to talking to you in the future. Good luck. Absolutely. Thanks for your time today. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in home care news, visit McKnight'sHomeCare.com. Home